All right, our, uh, our next speaker is Eric Rignot. Uh, Eric um, is uh, a professor at the uh, University of California in the Earth System Science Department and also uh, spends part-time here at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, Eric's uh, uh, work on um, interferometry has uh, really uh, shed a lot of light on uh, the flow and behavior of the ice sheets. Um, he also just got back from a trip to Greenland where they uh, uh, took a whole lot of data on a ship. He actually went to sea. Uh, so um, I don't know if we're going to hear about any of that, but uh, 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 he's one of those rare satellite people that actually got on a boat one time. So uh, I'll, stop, uh, I'll stop rambling. Eric's going to talk to us about observing Antarctic glaciers. And uh, let's thank him. All right, I'm going to talk to you about some of the observing systems to look at the glaciers. Can you hear me? I don't know if it works, this thing. Huh? Um, Does it work? Speak up so the people in the back can hear, but it's recording. Okay. Uh, <coughs> so this is an animation of Antarctica. This is the white continent, and this is the flow of ice um, measured from interferometry. To show you that uh, <coughs> the continent is complex, and you have these units, uh, which uh, Tony talked about, called ice streams flowing into ice shelves that drive the ice uh, from the interior into the coastline. And, and these features reach very far inland. In fact, when we map these features, uh, one of the most amazing things from this data was to see that these ice streams, uh, which we refer to glaciers, uh, are not just connected to the, to the periphery of the ice sheet. They address the whole ice sheet. So sometimes we separate a little bit in the community between glaciers and ice sheets. I, I personally don't make any difference uh, between a mountain glacier and, and a glacier in Antarctica. Uh, these drainage basins are just 100 or 1,000 times bigger, but they operate the same way. You have this uh, uh, channelized flow from the interior, but what's happening uh, along the coastline, where you would expect most perturbation because uh, this is the warmer part of the climate, this is also connected to the ocean. All that stuff happening here has ramification very far inland, not just a few kilometers, hundreds to a thousand of kilometers. Um, before uh, we had much observations of the ice sheet, the, the, the premise of the evolution of the ice sheets, I think it's good to go back to this, uh, even IPCC 2001, uh, based on models, uh, was suggesting that these ice sheets would only grow uh, as climate warms up because there's more evaporation from the ocean, more precipitation on land. And it's especially true of Antarctica, which is the big gorilla, uh, <coughs> the big uh, reservoir of ice uh, on Earth. So if precipitation increases just a little bit in Antarctica, it's enough to uh, uh, absorb uh, a lot of sea level. Right. Uh, <coughs> these models operated... Uh, at very coarse resolution, they still operate at very coarse resolution, and they don't have anything related to glacial dynamics in them. Right? These, these uh, ice sheets were modeled, I, I like to say, as, as big ice cubes that melt and grow depending on the climate. There's no uh, dynamics involved. And <coughs> what the observation system have shown in the past 20 years is that not only the dynamics of the ice is important, it's, it's, it's the main driver. Right? I, I even push it to the point where 
I'm not sure I care about precipitation uh, pattern anymore as opposed to what the glaciers are doing in response to climate forcing. Uh, <coughs> precipitation is low on these ice sheets. They, they are deserts by, uh, you know, Earth standard. The average precipitation on Earth is about a meter per year, and it snows 10 times less in Greenland and Antarctica. Uh, <coughs> the other thing, uh, about this geograph is that the rate of sea level that you're observing today, three millimeters per year, uh, is not really what concerns glaciologists. What concerns glaciologists is uh, events in the past, like the meltwater pulse 1A, where sea level was rising 50 millimeters per year. And that's not due to a change in melt, that's not due to a change in precipitation. That is the signature of what we call a collapse of an ice sheet. That's a nice dynamic response uh, to climate forcing. And this is a period where uh, ice sheet decayed very rapidly, uh, not only in the northern hemisphere, but uh, the only way we can explain that is that a big part of Antarctica collapsed. Which part? There's actually a lot of debate on that. Um, people can't exactly point their finger on which part of Antarctica uh, uh, generated uh, that meltwater event. So, uh, <coughs> in terms of observation techniques, uh, we didn't know nothing about ice sheets until the 1990s when we started launching satellites. Everything that was done before was so scanty and sparse that uh, <coughs> by default, uh, the presumption was that these ice sheets don't change very much. There's so few data, there's no big signal in any of them. Uh, the first technique that was used a lot uh, from satellite is, is radar altimetry from ERS that was launched in, in 1991. There were some altimeters before, but they were not at the level of precision that uh, ERS altimeter was able to achieve. And since then, we've had a laser ISAT mission in 2003. Uh, we have uh, suborbital missions. This is flying on aircrafts. We have cryosat flown by ESA right now. And then there's going to be follow-on missions, ISAT-2 and Sentinel-2. And the premise of this technique is to measure changes in height uh, of the ice sheet to uh, monitor places where it grows and where it shrinks, which is a very useful information, and uh, combine the results together to estimate the volume changes. So there's a lot of issues with this uh, technique because you measure height changes, you don't measure mass. Uh, and also, these are based on tracks. So the details that you have in these techniques are limited by the track spacing, which is generally very coarse. Uh, course to the point where you might get one track per glacier if you're lucky. Right? Uh, the other technique that came around a little bit uh, later, about 10 years later, is uh, the time variable gravity from the GRACE mission, which directly measures mass. Uh, so in terms of measuring mass balance from the ice sheets, this is the ultimate way to do it because it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, but uh, as you know, um, the resolution of GRACE is, is rather coarse, so it's adapted to measurements over the whole ice sheets. Uh, it can provide indications of the base, the areas where the mass loss is concentrated, like the peninsula and Pine Island Bay, but it's not going to give you details at the basin level, and it's not going to give you details about necessarily what's causing that mass loss. Uh, and the third technique is to, uh, is the mass budget technique, which compares the outflow to snow accumulation. In fact, historically, this was the first technique used by glaciologists to estimate the mass balance of the ice sheets. Uh, but as recently as uh, 1991, uh, when Charles Bensley uh, summarized the state of knowledge on what we knew about that, it was like 
three or four points in the whole continent uh, with positive and negative signs, which later on uh, were proven to be completely off um, because they had one estimate of ice velocity on one glacier, one estimate of ice thickness, and you have to figure out the mass balance from that. Uh, <coughs> another big problem of this technique was the reconstruction of surface mass balance in the interior of the ice sheet. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But uh, <coughs> in terms of measuring velocities, we can go back to the 50s and 60s when uh, there were some ground surveys and also some ISAT, Landsat data. Uh, this technique started to be applied mostly around 1992, and then we have a suite of satellites that can measure ice velocity. But uh, if you look at all the lists, actually none of these satellites were designed to do that. They were uh, opportunities of uh, mission of opportunities, as I call it, instead of being mission designed to measure ice velocity, uh, <coughs> contrary to the other techniques. So uh, with radar altimetry, I'll give you some of the, I think, the, the salient features of these observations. The, the first result from Wingham et al. using radar altimetry in 1998 showed this picture of changes in, in, uh, in height in uh, Antarctica. And they concluded that there was something going on perhaps around Pine Island Bay, but it was not significant enough compared to the surface mass balance noise to be sure it was the case. Uh, it was not until 2001 that Andy Shepard et al. Uh, look in detail at what's happening in uh, uh, Pine Island Glacier to figure out that there was some kind of large fitting going on on the trunk of the glacier. Uh, <coughs> Tony showed that view graph, but this is what's been done 10 years later with laser altimetry, so vertical precision is an order of magnitude better. Uh, but as you know, ISAT has been plagued by all kinds of problems, failing lasers, and <coughs> probably the most important one, it was a five-year mission. But still got some spectacular results, like this map from uh, Andy Pritchard, uh, Amish Pritchard, which shows uh, the fitting ice shelves around Antarctica. Uh, you see the fitting ice shelves in areas. This is not measured. This is uh, some kind of uh, artistic display of water temperature. In places where the water temperature uh, below the surface is warm, you see a lot of ice shelf fitting. And <coughs> perhaps more interestingly, uh, we sort of knew that from radar altimetry, but this is shown a little bit better with laser altimetry you see that in places where the ice shelves are thinning rapidly, the thinning propagates inland, and the glaciers are thinning as well, and they thin hundreds of kilometers inland of the grounding line. So this sort of pattern, uh, when uh, people started seeing that, was suggested that there was some perturbation occurring in the ocean, from the ocean uh, ice interface, propagating inland uh, through ice dynamics, because uh, all of these uh, signals of thinning here are completely correlated with the flow speed uh, of the glacier. So this is not caused by a uh, change in precipitation or melt. This is caused by ice going faster. Uh, <coughs> to measure ice, we use uh, interferometry. And this technique was developed by um, Richard Goldstein and others at JPL. Uh, and they published this paper in 1993, which had pretty much everything in it. This is the Radford Ice Stream. So you see the fringes here of displacement uh, of the glacier. So we had a line of sight displacement. So with interferometry, we compare two images acquired at different times, and we measure the change in electric path length, pretty much like a, uh, an optical interferometer. You see a tributary ice stream, the shear margins, where there's a large change in velocity across the margin, and even the transition from floating ice to uh, grounded ice over here. Uh, <coughs> and this was from ERS. 
Uh, Dick Goldstein used to say that the technique is amazing. Unfortunately, it doesn't work on ice. Uh, <coughs> I never quite understood that. But, but uh, this, this sort of result, when, when it came out, uh, was, was kind of a game changer for glissologists because in glissology, uh, when you had a few measurements of ice velocity on the glacier, that was already a major achievement. Right? And here, we have millions of measurements. Uh, well, more than what glissologists can, can ingest. Uh, <coughs> another important use of uh, interferometry is to map the position of grounding line, which is where the ice detaches from the bed and becomes a float. This is impossible to observe in the field. And there's numerous examples in history where people thought they knew where the glacier was becoming a float, and they were off by 100 kilometers. Right? Uh, <coughs> so interferometry can measure that if you uh, measure the speed of the glacier several times and you difference that with time, you're going to remove the horizontal long-term flow of the ice and you're going to look at the short-term fluctuation of the glacier speed, which is mostly vertical, from the flapping up and down of the ice shelf uh, forced by ocean tides. And you, you get a pattern like this with interferometry where you see this rapid transition here. That's where the ice uh, transition to hydrostatic equilibrium is like a little step over. So you can fit some model for that and look at the limit of tidal fracture. You can also look at the place where you start seeing the ice lifting up from the bed, and that's what we call the grounding line. So <coughs> initially, we were interested in that because there's a lot of uncertainty about this. And this is where you want to measure the outflow of ice into the ocean. Because right? if you measure it downstream, uh, there's all kinds of ice-ocean interaction in between that's going to remove ice, and your outflow is going to be underestimated. There was a lot of errors made in the past because people measured the ice flux uh, too far downstream. So this is important for ice flux, but this is also, uh, and I'm not sure it has been emphasized enough by modelers, it's a critical boundary for models. This is where, uh, as Tony explained, some of the mechanics of the formation of the ice is the most complex and the most sensitive to perturbation. Right? So you can have a very fancy ice sheet model. If you don't know where the grounding line of your glacier is, um, I think you're pretty much lost. Uh, if you cannot track the position of this grounding line with time and see how it migrates in response to climate forcing, it's going to be very difficult to evaluate uh, the quality of the model. So. Uh, <coughs> Tony showed that example of Pine Island Glacier, which, uh, where we used interferometry to monitor the grounding line retreat of this glacier. Uh, <coughs> since the 70s, people suspected that this glacier could be transitioning rapidly, but there was no data uh, to illustrate that. And the first type of data we got to indicate that there was something going on uh, was from the retreat of the grounding line. Uh, another example of uh, interferometry result that was obtained by Helmut wrote was um, the change in speed of Dugalski Glacier in the wake of the Larsen A collapse in 1995. Uh, <coughs> I remember when I, was, uh, when I saw this result for the first time, I was chairing this session and I was floored by the result that Helmut showed. Uh, not, it was interesting to see the speed up of the glacier. What was amazing to me that is that the speed up propagated all the way through the glacier, all the way up to the ice divide. The whole thing was responding to the collapse of the ice shelf. Not just a little bit on the side. The whole system was just what we call drawdown and falling off to sea. Right? 
And these were not the big mama glaciers that people are worried about. This is a small glacier in the Antarctic Peninsula, kind of a steep gradient, not the kind of glacier that's well lubricated, sliding very rapidly, uh, and susceptible to rapid collapse. Then there's the <coughs> Pine Island Glacier. This is an interferogram of Pine Island from the 1990s. And we detected the speed, uh, speed up of this glacier. It took a long time for us to get that because the data was so bad that uh, we had to accumulate a lot of observations before we could say, hey, yeah, it's speeding up. And the result, I mean, the speed up was kind of substantial, but the data were not easy to use to detect that. But what I'm showing you here is uh, a change in flow speed of Pine Island Glacier. So you see that the change in flow speed is completely correlated with the flow speed. But this is measured over one month. Right? Um, <coughs> and um, this was also a very important result. It showed that this glacier is responding to some changes over a very long distance, all at the same time. There was a lot of studies done prior to having this observation that suggested that the floating ice and the grounding ice are coupled of uh, only a few kilometers. So you can disturb what's happening on the ice shelf. It's going to propagate just a few kilometers. There's lots of papers written on that. Uh, and when you get uh, interferometry results that show, well, uh, not only is perturbing the ice upstream, it's going pretty far upstream. Uh, and I remember Duncan Wingham asking me, how far upstream do you think it goes? And I said, I don't know. There's no more data out there. There's no tracks. We can't tell you. But it seems to be going quite far. Right. Now we know a little bit how far it goes because uh, there's been uh, about 10 years of data acquired from different satellites to say this is Pine Island Glacier. And you see that uh, almost all the tributaries are changing. And my suspicion is that these changes are propagating all the way to the ice divides of these ice streams. We can't see it because we start hitting the noise floor uh, on some of this data. This is Twaits Glacier and this is Smith Glacier. Uh, so we see Pine Island Glacier accelerating and the, the speed up is propagating in all the tributaries. And Twaits Glacier is also speeding up since 2006 uh, with uh, also the flow speed up propagating inland. Tony mentioned that, but this was an important result in the collapse of Lars and B to see these uh, glaciers speeding up. Uh, <coughs> some people didn't think the glaciers would speed up. Uh, Pedro Svarka and uh, De Angelis published a paper in 2003 suggesting there could be some big changes. They reported pictures of these uh, pieces of glaciers stranded on ice cliffs as a result of the very rapid drawdown of the Ugalski Glacier. The changes are so rapid that uh, the glacier forgets some pieces of of ice up on the, on the cliff. And as Tony showed you, uh, the glacier sped up by a factor eight. Right? It was not uh, like, is it speeding up or not? Well, yeah, it's speeding up, factor eight. <coughs> so this is illustrating that um, the removal of this ice shelf can have a very important factor uh, on, uh, on the Antarctic ice sheet. Right? Uh, <coughs> if we were, uh, if we were to speed up all the glaciers uh, of Antarctica by, t uh, by, uh, by a factor eight, the sea level would kick in several centimeters per year. Right? Uh, this is the complete map of, of uh, Antarctica. Uh, this was produced uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, 
I usually say that it took us about 10 years to put this together. If we really had an inside mission to do this, we could do that in a couple of months. Right? This, is, this is kind of the state of uh, observation networks that we have to look at these glaciers. <coughs> this is the details of the uh, velocity map on Pine Island Glacier. If you want to look at these glaciers, we also need information about ice thickness. These are all the ice thickness lines that have been acquired. Uh, this is the most mapped sector of the Antarctic ice sheet. This is the most mapped sector probably of Greenland and Antarctica except for Jakob and Isbury. Uh, <coughs> you would think that with this network of ice thickness, uh, we kind of have a done deal. There's still a lot of issues with this data. There's a lot of problems. Um, and we have ac actually not quite solved the ice thickness mapping problem. Um, I can talk about that uh, 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 for a long time. I'm not going to spend so much time on, on that here. Uh, <coughs> when we look at the mass balance of these glaciers, we want to delineate their drainage boundaries. And uh, uh, interferometry is also useful for that because you can track the flow lines. And it's not so obvious where the ice is coming from in some of these, uh, some of these areas. Some of the earlier maps were sometimes wrong about where glaciers originate and, and how it splits up into one ice shelf versus another. So we're learning a lot from, uh, from that as well. Now I showed you these ice thickness maps. Where do they come from? They don't come from satellites because we don't know how to measure ice thickness from satellites. So they come from uh, brave uh, people flying on airplanes. Uh, this is the uh, ice bridge team from NASA here, uh, pictured in 2009. <coughs> we collect this data in Antarctica. Uh, so this is uh, the type of instrumentation that they have uh, on the NASA P3. Uh, there's a suite of instruments. The most important one are the laser altimeter, ATM, uh, the radar sounder with the antennas on the side of the airplane and multiple elements, uh, and the gravimeter which is under the fuselage. Uh, the others uh, are useful instruments, but they're not as, as critical as, as some of these main ones. So gravity uh, was kind of a, an addition to Icebridge. And it provided, uh, in my opinion, what still remains the most amazing results from Icebridge. This was obtained in 2009. They used gravity uh, to map the seafloor in front of Pine Island Glacier. So this is all covered by a floating ice shelf over here. And of course, you can use gravity also to infer ice thickness in the interior. In, in the early days, when they first measured ice thickness during these aeroic traverses in, uh, during IGY, people used a gravimeter, um, which is good enough to get some data along some lines. And the airborne systems were not good enough uh, to provide uh, good data. They were beaten by all the radar sounding techniques that could do the job much better. But gravimeter have improved a lot over time, and uh, not only the instruments, but also the way people process the data with uh, differential GPS on board these airplanes. They have better algorithms to resolve acceleration of, of the airplanes and make corrections. Uh, so now we are able to obtain data at the sub-milligal level and, and, and getting some useful stuff out of that. So <coughs> this is the grounding line. You see the trough of Pine Island Glacier. And the big surprise that came out of Icebridge was this ridge that Tony talked about, which was partially mapped by the Autosub uh, from the British Antarctic Survey about the same time. But here we have a complete depiction of that ridge and a little passage for the water over here. Uh, so the first big uh, sub-ice shelf cavities that Icebridge mapped, right, 
big surprise. We didn't expect to find a ridge in the middle of that. It shows how little we know. Uh, <clears throat> there's been a lot of effort spent to uh, use all these data to create a bedrock map of Antarctica. And, and, and the last one came out just a few months ago. It's called Bedmap 2. It integrates all the measurements, not just from NASA, but uh, from other countries. Uh, it integrates measurements of uh, ice shelf thickness derived from a radar altimeter. Uh, <coughs> a lot of progress has been made uh, between Bedmap 1 from 2001 and Bedmap 2, but there's still a lot of issues uh, uh, with this data. There's some sectors that are mapped Maps sort of okay, and some sectors uh, don't be fooled by the density of this data here. Uh, not all of this is good data. Uh, <coughs> so this data are combined with drainage basin and speed uh, to measure the outflow of the ice. And then over the same drainage basin, you calculate how much uh, snow is being accumulated. And from that, you can do the mass budget. So surface mass balance, um, I don't know if you mentioned that the first estimate of uh, the mass balance of Antarctica was actually coming out from Grace, from uh, Isabella and, uh, and John War in 2006. Uh, <coughs> we had estimates of the mass balance from the mass budget, but we were still at the transition period where the surface mass balance was not something we, we were trusting very well. Until um, the team from University of Utrecht and RACMO came along uh, where they use regional atmospheric climate model forced by these reanalysis data, which uh, are very good quality. And not only we could get values of average precipitation in Antarctica, but we could also have monthly and yearly values of that surface mass balance. And this was also the first time that this information was derived without touching the in-situ data. This is all driven by a model, which is also driven by observations, of course. But uh, then they use the result of their model and compare them with instituted ice cores and snow pits to see how well things work. Right? And this was a game changer for the mass budget to have something of this quality. The, the typical precision of this data is less than 10% error. Right? Uh, <coughs> so with that, you can look at the different basins around Antarctica and see which ones are out of balance, which are, are in balance. So the big blob here is from that old sector, Pine Island Bay, Twaits, uh, Smith Glacier, and a little bit of Cats. And this is also in the wake of uh, the collapse of Larsen B. And there's some spurious signals here and there. And <coughs> something going on in West Antarctica, Totem Glacier, right, which we have been looking at for a while because uh, altimetry also shows some thinning there. Uh, this basin here. <laughs> Uh, contains as much as uh, as much potential for sea level rise than all of West Antarctica. Right? This is a big submarine glacier. Uh, there's always a lot of focus on West Antarctica, but there are some sectors in East Antarctica that are potentially as significant as West Antarctica. Uh, I mentioned GRACE before. Uh, GRACE measurements of mass balance for the whole continent. So you see that the, the picture is very consistent with the picture from, uh, from the mass budget. You know, this was comforting to see the first result of GRACE showing the mass loss in places where red altimetry was showing fitting and the mass budget was showing acceleration. And you can also see a little bit of curvature of that signal that shows that this is not a constant mass loss, which would be a line. This is a mass loss that's increasing with time. 
And uh, I call Grace the Weber Channel because um, it provides results month by month, right, on what's happening on the ice sheets. Something the other techniques can't quite do yet. They could do it potentially, but the missions are not designed to be able to do that. So if I can tackle this movie here, all right, this is made by Isabella. It shows the, the time evolution of mass loss around Antarctica, the big blob in Pine Island, and some mass loss accumulating in a peninsula. And towards the end, you see a big snow event in Quidmore land that brings a little bit of positive mass gain. <coughs> so we compared the mass budget and GRACE in a paper a few years ago. Uh, we did not include altimetry because at that time there was actually no estimate of mass loss from altimeters. Uh, <coughs> the takeaway message from, from this graph is you see that both ice sheets are, are losing mass and the mass loss is increasing with time. But you also see the tremendous signal from surface mass balance, the climate variability on the ice sheet, which means that if you fly a mission for just a few years, you could get results that are fooling you completely in terms of what the ice sheet really does uh, in terms of long-term mass balance. All right. uh, <coughs> this was uh, completed by the INBI assessment where uh, I don't know how many people, 30, 40 people got together from all these different techniques and compare their results uh, from uh, gravimetry, input-output, laser altimetry, radar altimetry, put them together. There's good agreement between all these techniques, which was comforting. There's still a little bit of uncertainty. It's what's happening in East Antarctica. And in East Antarctica, the laser altimetry is, has been an outlier for, for quite a bit of time. I think I know why, but I'll talk about that offline. And then the last part, uh, this is my last view graph, uh, on ice shelf melting. So this is a, a result we published recently, which shows the pattern of melting of the ice shelf surrounding Antarctica. Um, <coughs> the glaciers that flow into ice shelves control about 85% of the discharge of the continent into the ice sheet. So in a way, the state of health of the ice shelf dictates what's going to happen to Antarctica. Uh, you can whatever is going to happen to the ice shelves in the Antarctica in the future is going to drive what's going to happen to the mass of the continent. All right. So uh, what we found is that uh, the melting of these ice shelves into the ocean is actually the dominant process of mass ablation into the ocean. It's not iceberg calming, as is uh, usually coded in, uh, in, in textbooks. Uh, <coughs> a lot of the big ice shelves, Fersnabroni and Ross, actually very low producers of, uh, of ice shelf meltwater. The ones that create the most ice shelf water are these tiny ice shelves, which are more difficult to observe with satellites because they're smaller, uh, along the peninsula, along the Amundsen Sea, in sectors bathing in warm waters. And <coughs> the results also indicate that there's some places in Antarctica that just look the same as West Antarctica in terms of ice shelf melting and uh, evolution of the glaciers. We should keep a close watch into that. Uh, we need to continue these observations. To get something like this, we need a combination of INSAR, we need ice thickness, we need surface mass balance, we need DHTT from ISAT. You need a lot of observations in order to monitor the bottom melt rate uh, of these ice sheets. And I'll stop here.